I was on a lot of boards where I got to see other entrepreneurs who were totally passionate. They would come to these meetings and they're completely jazzed and they have this new feature or this new product and the excitement is contagious. You're like, wow, this is awesome to be a part of. And I always had this idea about covered calls that I wanted to do. So I literally gave up the job of advising other people on how to be entrepreneurs so that I could go and be an entrepreneur. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy course, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Welcome to the Dreamer's Moment. We talk to people who are in the arena, chasing their dreams. My name is Mike Scanlon, and I'm the CEO of BornToSell.com. It's a website for investors. It is a SaaS model, so a subscription model to an information service. And the value it provides is it helps investors make decisions on where to invest their money. Okay, so I did a little reading, and um, when I read the definition of a covered call, the words that jumped out at me were um, minimal risk. But to be honest, I don't, I don't think I really understood it. How do you explain this to somebody like myself who just is like a typical 401k investor? Sure. Uh, well, unfortunately, you can't do 401 uh, covered calls. Excuse me, in a 401k, you would need at least a self-directed. IRA account uh, or a normal taxable account where you can buy and sell individual stocks and options uh, to do covered calls. But a covered call is a two-part trade. Uh, the first part is you buy shares normally like you would. You say, I want to buy 100 shares of Disney. You, you place an order. You, now you own 100 shares of Disney. The second part is you sell a call option against those shares. And what that means, well, first I'll define a call option. A call option is an agreement between two people where one thinks the stock is going to go up and the other thinks the stock is going to go down. And it has a defined time limit to it, so it has an expiration date, and it has what's known as a strike price or the agreed-upon price where one person believes the stock will be above that price on a certain date and the other believes the stock will be below that price on a certain date. So, for example, if I own the Disney stock, and I sell to you, let's say Disney's trading at $50 a share. I don't follow Disney, so I don't know what it is today. Uh, and you think Disney's going to be over 55 in a month's time, and I think, no, it's not. It's going to be below 55 because that means it would have to rise by 10% in one month. So you pay me $100, as an example, for the right to buy my Disney stock at a price of 55 that's called the strike price, 
any time between now and a month from now. So I take your $100 and I agree to that deal. Now, if in a month's time, if Disney is above $55 a share, you have the right as the option holder to contact your broker and say, I'd like to exercise my option and buy 100 shares of Disney at 55. And maybe they came out with a new movie or something and it's you know up to 60, but you have the right to buy it at 55. So that's a good deal for you. Me as the, as the stockholder, I'm obligated to give you my 100 shares of Disney stock at a price of 55. So even though the stock might be trading at 60 or anything above 55, I'm only going to get $55 a share for my 100 shares. So I haven't really lost, but I haven't made as much as I could have. You, on the other hand, have risked $100 at the beginning of this trade, and now you're buying stock that's five points you know, below market price if it was at 60. So you've done quite well. Your 100 shares, you've probably made $500 profit in that example. So it's a little tricky because it's a two-part trade, and a lot of people aren't comfortable with um, options. But the main story is if you own stock and you're not selling call options against your shares every month, you're really kind of leaving money on the table every month because 75% of these options expire worthless, meaning the stock is below the agreed-upon strike price on the day when the option expires. And when that happens, um, you know, I keep my stock and I keep the $100 that the option uh, buyer gave me at the beginning and the option is now gone. It ceases to exist. So now I can sell another call option against my same stock the following month. And I can keep doing that every month. Okay. So so with your service then, are you are you just kind of managing that whereas in a normal day trader environment, you're just kind of risking whether you're, you're buying high or you're selling too low or whatever? Um, well, not really. We don't manage money directly and we don't um, give trade recommendations. We don't really tell our customers you should buy this stock and sell that option. Instead, what we are is a database of all 400,000 covered calls. There's about 400,000 combinations of underlying stocks and strike prices and expiration dates. So the problem we solve is how do you reduce a set of 400,000 things down to a set of 10 things, which are the 10 that you might actually want to invest in over the next 30 days? And we will give you tools where you can layer on different risk reducers, such as you can say, I don't want any stock that has an earnings release before the option expiration date, because that's just too volatile of an event. Or I don't want stocks to trade above a PE of 20 or a below a market cap of a billion dollars. Or you can say, I do want a stock that has an ex-dividend date prior to the option expiration date so that I can capture the dividend as well as the option premium. It's basically a strategy used by income investors. And the value we provide is a time-saving research tool. If you're active in this strategy, you typically spend 20 or 30 hours a month in Excel spreadsheets, you know, looking for trade ideas where the, the math kind of pencils out to a return level that you're happy with and not too much risk. And so we solve that problem. We reduce your research time from hours per week to minutes. And, you know, people pay us a monthly fee to, to save that kind of time. Okay. So that that's that's very helpful. So I was imagining that you were researching the stocks and trying to manage this, but what you're doing is you're managing the parameters around covered calls. Right? Exactly. Okay. And so yeah. um, 
do people now, so I did have a little experience in day trading and a friend who did it real seriously. Do people quit their day jobs to, to focus on this kind of, tr you know, covered calls like they would being a day trader, or is it just part of your investment portfolio? No, it's more of a passive income strategy. So it's typically something that people do who own shares and want to extract a little more value from those shares. Maybe they're getting a 3% a year dividend yield, but they'd like to goose that a little bit and get some more income. So by selling calls every month or even every week, because they have weekly options, you know, ones that have durations as little as a week, you can probably add 5 or 10% a year to any stock position that you might have. So if you take 5 or 10% and you tack it onto a 3% dividend, now you're looking at 8 to 13% a year in income on stocks that you own. And if you do this across a diversified portfolio of blue chip stocks, I'm thinking like the Dow 30, you know, sort of diversified portfolio, uh, it's relatively stable. And there's many studies that have shown that doing a systematic covered call investment strategy has higher yield at less risk than the most common alternative, which is buy and hold, which is what most people do. They just buy stock and they hold it and they collect dividends. It right. turns out the call premium, the call premium that you get every month is a risk reducer because if the stock drops a little bit, you know, you might even break even that month, even though your stock went down a dollar per share, because you received a dollar per share in call premium and now that option's expired. So the option the stock went down a dollar and you basically broke even that month. And that's a pretty good deal. Are most of your clients big stock investors or does it cover the whole range? Well, you need to own 100 shares, so you can't really do this with a tiny portfolio. Uh, and even doing it with 100 shares is a little problematic depending where you trade because of the transaction costs and the commissions. So most people will want to own 500 shares or 1,000 shares of a, of a stock and then sell five contracts if they own 500 shares. So one call option controls 100 shares. So if you had 1,000 shares, you would do 10 contracts. And then you want to diversify, so you probably want to have five to ten different positions in non-correlated, you know, industries. So you probably are looking at five positions of 500 shares each. And so it depends on what stocks you purchase as how much capital that will take. But, you know, if it were a $20 stock and you had um, 100 shares, that would be $2,000, so times five, maybe $10,000 for one position on a $20 stock and then multiply that by five or 10 positions so you can get diversified. So you're probably looking realistically at $50,000 or more in, as a portfolio size before you can do covered calls and, and not be eaten alive by transaction costs. So but let's go back before you were doing this full time. You were a VC in, in Silicon Valley, and to many people that sounds pretty amazing. What happened that made you want to be an entrepreneur? Sure. So I had been an entrepreneur at the beginning before I was a VC. I worked at five different startups in Silicon Valley as a programmer. And then I switched into the business world and became a venture capitalist. And I did that for about 10 years. And I really loved it. I mean, you read all these business plans written by really smart people. You get to choose who you work with because realistically, VCs probably fund about one out of 100 business plans that they receive. So when you're reading plans, you're really focused on, is this the best thing that I've seen, you know, in the last hundred plans or, 
you know, if it's mediocre, I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to rush to deploy capital here. I'm going to save my capital for just the best deals. And so that's really a privilege and nice position to be in. I was very fortunate that way. But there is a huge amount of travel in that job. And business travel can be fun the first time you go to a new city or maybe even the first five times. But the next 20 times you go to that same city, it's a chore. And I got to the point where, I mean, as as fun of a city as Austin, Texas is, I've done three deals in Austin, Texas, made three investments as a VC. And I just got tired of the flight there. It's three hours from the area, the taxi ride, the hotel. I mean, I probably went there twice a month for two years, you know, for board meetings and whatnot. And so the, uh, the business travel is, is, is extreme. I, I probably was on the road three out of five days, business days. That was one negative. And I enjoy travel. I mean, travel is one of my passions, but travel for fun, international travel is what I enjoy. Uh, so I got, you know, after eight or nine years of three days a week, it didn't suit my personality as much as it did at the beginning. That was a negative. The other thing was I was on a lot of boards where I got to see other entrepreneurs who were totally passionate. They would come to these meetings and they're completely jazzed and they have this new feature or this new product and the excitement is contagious. You're like, wow, this is awesome to be a part of. And I always had this idea about covered calls that I wanted to do. So I literally gave up the job of advising other people on how to be entrepreneurs so that I could go and be an entrepreneur and you know have the flexibility to do what I wanted 100% of the time. On a subject matter that I cared a lot about, I had been trading covered calls for 25 years prior to creating Born to Sell. My father was a stockbroker and taught me as a teenager about stock options. And I learned at a young age that buying options was a bad idea. That's more like gambling because most of them expire worthless. But selling options to other people is a good idea. That's where the name comes from, Born to Sell. So the, the full sentence is Born to Sell Options to Other People. And uh, it has meaning with my customer set because we are option sellers, not option buyers. Okay. So so when you stepped out of that, uh, your career, and began to put together your idea, it sounded like over about a year and a half period, um, did you feel confident through that whole time and with your own investment that it was going to be successful? Uh, you know, I didn't know for sure, but I did have a competitor, and I was actually a, a subscriber to a competing service while I was still a VC, and this other service did save me some research time, but his software was awful, and it looked like it was written in the 1970s, you know, by an amateur programmer, and, and I had been a programmer for a dozen years, you know, before being a VC, and I'm like, geez, I can write code, and, you know, with today's modern user interface standards, you know, with uh, Ajax, and it's much cleaner way to write software than uh, almost like a command line interface, you know, which is sort of what the other thing was. And the other guy had been around for eight years and I figured, well, if he's been successful running this business on covered call software for eight years, and that's pretty much the only solution out there, I'm just going to make a better version of, of what that is, you know, with modern architecture and design and, uh, and charge a little bit less money per month than he does. And it worked. Um, I got a lot of his subscribers. Many of my early subscribers said, hey, I used to subscribe to this other one, but yours is 10 times better for less money. Uh, There's no way I'm going back to that guy's thing. And 18 months after I launched, um, he closed his doors and uh, couldn't make it work anymore. So what's been the biggest obstacle or challenge you've hit during that time where you were making that leap into starting your own business? 
I guess, you know, it was my first time hiring freelancers and I wasn't real familiar with that process. And, you know, hiring someone online is fairly simple. There are marketplaces where you can post jobs and get people who submit, you know, offers to do work. The hard part comes in interviewing them and managing them after you've given them the job. So I probably interviewed over a hundred people and I maybe hired 35 or so to help me with my project over about 12 month period. And the process of giving uh, little tasks as part of the interview. So sort of trial by fire rather than just, you know, speaking to them or reading a resume, actually giving them a piece of work to complete, you know, as part of the interview was something that I learned is really important because then you can check work quality and timeliness and communication and a bunch of things that don't come through just during a normal interview. So I guess the, the skills that I acquired was how to hire freelancers. And that was an obstacle I didn't have at the beginning. I made some bad hires at the beginning. And the other thing I didn't appreciate was the time zone difference because many of the people I hired were in Eastern or Western Europe and, and some even in Asia. And so my sleeping times uh, <laughs> have altered. I was working real late at night and real early in the morning. And, and then during the, the meat of my daytime, I didn't have a lot to do because they were all asleep. <laughs> Can you share a time when something came together for your business and something magical happened as a result of you chasing your dream? Yeah, there was a, a Yahoo group who was uh, involved in the subject of what my site is about, you know, covered call investing. And I approached the moderators of that group and said, hey, I'm building this project. Would you guys give me your opinion on the feature set or the user interface? And, and to my pleasant surprise, they said yes. And I sent them my skeleton outline of what I wanted to do. And they were really enthusiastically positive about it and made some really great suggestions and told me, you know, you're on the absolute right track. There's nothing like this. And we love what you have. Here's a couple of other things that we might want to throw in to make it even better. And by being collaborative with people who were, you know, my potential customers ended up with a much better product and also kept me going along the way because they kept emailing me, hey, when's it available? Can we use it yet? And they were real excited about it. So that was super helpful. What is life like now and how is it different since working for yourself? Well, I'm still busy. I, I like to work. I enjoy projects. The difference is now I have 100% accountability <laughs> for myself and I also get 100% of the rewards if I do something good. Whereas, you know, as a VC, you share a lot of the reward with the people who gave you the money to invest or, or your employer in, in the case of uh, the junior people. So I would say the difference is a more direct path um, to work effort, work effort and reward. And also just freedom of my time. You know, if I want to take off a Tuesday all day because I want to go for a hike, you know, I can. And uh, that's not, not something you can do when you work for somebody else unless you take a personal day or vacation day. Then I don't take too many days off, but it's nice to know I don't have to ask permission and I can just schedule them whenever I like. What would you share with others who are in a day job but want to pursue their own dream? And by that, I don't mean just taking a risk, but something you've learned on your journey that you feel others might benefit from. Yeah, the hardest part is getting started. And the second hardest part is taking little steps along the way to accomplish a bigger goal. So there's that joke, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Well, it's one bite at a time. <laughs> and setting yourself minor goalposts on the path to a major goalpost is important, so you keep making progress. But you got to be self-motivated. 
and you have to, no one's going to be sitting there cracking the whip over your head like a boss, but it's really to slack off and, and not get your things done. But then your project will take way longer than you thought, maybe exceed, you know, the amount of money you saved up not to have an income. So, you know, treat it like a job, be professional, work every day, and definitely have small goals on the path, you know, even schedule them out, you know, on the path towards a larger, bigger goal. How can people find you on the internet? Sure. My email address is mike at born to sell, uh, just like it sounds, born to sell.com, sorry, or uh, the URL born to sell.com. Uh, my contact information is listed there as well. Next time on The Dreamer's Moment. It easily could have, Disney could have easily closed up shop oh, yeah. and walked away, but Roy insisted that his brother's vision was going to get built, and it weren't for Roy. And there were other great people involved, but it weren't for Roy saying, this is going to be built. It wouldn't, I don't think it would have got built, and I think that's why Roy, his name uh, should be just as tied to that resort as, as his brother. The Dreamer's Moment is part of the Life Podcast Network, a group of family-friendly podcasts bringing a positive message of hope and inspiration. Find us at lifepodcast.net.